From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. Massive document leaks have led to the fall of world leaders and to new anti-corruption laws. He was forced to resign because it was found out that he lied. But some leaks have had negative consequences. Just under 1,000 legitimate foreign intelligence targets have changed their communications patterns based upon the Snowden revelations. It tells you America's less safe for a while. So, is there a limit to the public's right to know? And what is the role of the media in making sense of leaked documents? These are projects that need to be handled responsibly, and the public interest test is the most significant one that we can have to judge any kind of story. Document leaks, the consequences of revealing secrets, next on America Abroad. From Public Radio International, this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. I'm Madeline Brand. On a Sunday afternoon, the week before Christmas, journalist Laura Halminen smashed her laptop with a hammer. It sparked and it smoked. And her act set off a chain of events that led to one of the biggest debates about security and press freedom in recent Finnish history. A day before she attacked her computer, Laura had co-authored a big investigative piece in Finland's largest and oldest newspaper. The article included images of highly classified documents about the Finnish Intelligence Research Center. That's a branch of the military whose mandate is so secret that for years, Finnish journalists had fought in court to get some documents about it released, and they lost. But... Halminen got the documents from a whistleblower, and to protect her source, she took the extreme measure of hammering her laptop into a smoldering mess. When Halminen called for help putting out the fire, not only did fire trucks arrive at her Helsinki apartment, so did the police, and later the KRP, which is like Finland's FBI. They suspected Halminen was destroying evidence. And so they searched her home. They seized her broken laptop, her phone, her USB sticks, all without a warrant from a judge. And from there, things only got more intense. Halminen and her editor argue that the documents are of profound public interest. They relate to how the country conducted intelligence and whether some of those techniques might be used to illegally spy on Finnish citizens. On the other side is the Finnish government, which has to protect five and a half million Finns against one of the most powerful forces in the world, the Russian army. Russia, after all, is right next door to Finland. Well, today on America Abroad, we'll look at cases like the one in Finland, and we'll ask... When is leaking documents and revealing secrets worth the potential security risks? We'll talk about when document leaks are legal, when they are morally justified, and when they aren't, and how, at times, they have put lives in danger. We'll look at the balance of protecting national security versus freedom of the press and the responsibility of journalists once they obtain leaked documents. Beyond our borders, we'll look at the extraordinary measures China takes to suppress secrets and how military leaders in Pakistan may have used a leak for their own political advantage. Finally, we'll examine what it takes for a leaked document to ignite a political movement. But first, back to Finland, where a single newspaper article threw that country into a debate that pits the press against the government. Our producer, Shoshi Shmulevitz, picks up the story. Helsing and Sanomat's publication of classified intelligence documents sent a tremor through the country. For years, Finns have wondered about the mysterious military base located deep in a forest in central Finland. 
what did the Finnish Intelligence Research Center even do? According to the article, the center uses signals intelligence methods to spy on the Russian military. Now that it was finally out in the open, a lot of Finns weren't happy with the newspaper. Readers called in and wrote letters to the editor criticizing the paper for giving away military secrets and potentially antagonizing Russia. There's been a lot of reaction and I would say overreaction. That's Martin Shannon, a Finnish professor of international law at the European University Institute. He spent years at the UN working to protect human rights in the course of counterterrorism efforts. Shannon is more concerned about the government's response to the article. The president of the republic, Sauli Niinistö himself, called for a criminal investigation of the newspaper, its editor-in-chief, and the individual journalists who wrote the article. High-ranking government officials, including the Minister of Defense, have accused the newspaper of being unpatriotic. There is a crime called Disclosure of a National Secret. Paivi Korpisari is a professor of communications law at Helsinki University. Disclosure of a National Secret is a rarely used section of the criminal code. Korpisari doubts the journalists would have even imagined the possibility of such charges. Usually, the journalists think that the one who is leaking the information illegally is the only one who is responsible. But in fact, according to the criminal code, a person who unlawfully publishes information on a matter that has been classified as secret shall be sentenced to imprisonment for at least four months and at most four years. And it's quite important that this is in the chapter of the penal code that relates to treason and related offenses. While this law is on the books, Finland has also had laws about government transparency for over 200 years. And it currently ranks third in the world for press freedom. In Finland, charging journalists with treason would be an extraordinary measure. I don't remember any case where somebody had been charged of this crime. In fact, says Korpisari, this is the first time that classified documents relating to national security have been leaked to and published by the Finnish press. So what did Helsing and Sanomat publish that could pose such a grave threat to national security? The part of the article that's most criticized is the pictures. Graphic images of the way the documents have been marked as a secret. But law professor Shannon doesn't think they're a problem because the pictures only show small parts of the documents, all of which are over a decade old. There was no technical information published that would reveal any secrets about the actual methods of surveillance. Furthermore, those technical details were already public knowledge. And there I find strange how this now could be a threat to national security when the same things were reported in a different light earlier by another newspaper. I tend to take the view that in case those who know about these things, if they classified something, then there is a reason for that. That's Hannah Smith. She's the academic director at the Helsinki-based European Center of Excellence for Countering Hybrid Threats. Hybrid meaning not just military and political threats, but also informational, things like Twitter bots and fake news. Smith's research focuses on Russia, Finland's neighbor to the east. And she says... One reason the document leak is problematic is that most of it deals with spying on Russia. 
there was a huge worry relating to Russia. That's because Finnish history is pockmarked by Russian aggression, multiple wars, and a hundred years of Russian imperial rule. Even after Finland finally gained its independence in 1917, the Russian threat never really went away. Russia has a kind of interest beyond its own borders. Finland can't afford to antagonize Russia. That's why, for instance, Finland hasn't joined NATO. Russia took the stand of actually threatening Finland. You know, bad things will happen to Finland in case it uh, will join NATO. To get the point across, Russia sometimes sends military jets into Finnish airspace. The whole kind of Finnish security thinking today is that we need to somehow take care of ourselves. Making Russia think twice about attacking means Finland needs to maintain a defensive edge. Rigorous and secret intelligence programs. Putting classified information about the Finnish Intelligence Research Center out in the open could erode that defensive edge. Ilka Kanarva would agree. He's the chairman of the Defense Council in the Finnish parliament. Days after the news story came out, he gave an interview to the government TV network YLE. He says that in addition to the obvious risks, meaning Russian intelligence, this document leak indicates that Finland can't be trusted to keep secrets. This, he says, has caused difficulties with Finland's national security partners. The leaked documents about Finland spying on Russia are a real cause for concern. But Smith, like Shannon, concedes that the information the newspaper printed doesn't seem that sensitive. What's worrying is the leak itself. How this type of a material got to a, a journalist. How can we know the leaker wasn't compromised? That he or she wasn't influenced by Russia? The editor-in-chief of Helsingin Sanomat, Kaius Niemi, gave a TV interview. The interviewer asks, how can you be sure the article won't harm national security? Niemi says, we vetted our sources. We also made sure there wasn't anyone behind the source trying to influence the story. And we understood all the risks. If the real national security threat isn't the information the paper printed, but rather the leak itself, then why did the authorities focus on the journalists more than the leaker? Where did the leak even come from? Martin Shannon has a theory. I would say there, the, the, the possibility that the leak comes from the president's office has triggered a strong reaction as a kind of defensive mechanism, and then you blame the journalists. But I find it highly likely that the authorities already know who the leaker is, even if that is not discussed in the public. He thinks what's really happening is that the journalists are being punished for throwing a wrench into a new bill that would allow for mass surveillance of Finnish citizens. The Helsing and Sanomat article revealed the scope of the surveillance program and the extreme level of secrecy around it. And in doing so, it showed that the type of surveillance Finnish lawmakers want to legalize may already have been going on for years. As the legislation in the making is quite sensitive and problematic, authorities may feel a degree of panic that they're getting a bad reputation. Shannon says the fact that the government wants to build a legal framework around these surveillance programs is a good thing. The problem is that these policies were never open to public debate. And this is done 
completely secretly without transparency. It could take months to conclude the investigation into whether the journalists committed treason. But whether or not they're convicted, Shannon says this has already had a chilling effect on press freedom. The original article promised a whole series of stories about the leaked documents. But since the investigation began, the newspaper hasn't released anything significant. People think that Finland is a model country for freedom of expression, but actually respect for freedom of expression has not been internalized. At the very least, concerns about press freedom and government transparency are not taking precedence over fears about Russia. An overwhelming majority of Finns just voted to re-elect President Sauli Niinisto, a conservative known for being extremely cautious with Russia. This public support could make it easier to pass the surveillance bill. One month after the newspaper article came out, the coalition government decided to expedite that vote on the surveillance bill saying that national security concerns had recently become more urgent. That was Shoshish Malevitz, who co-produced that story with Finnish reporter Mari Karpinen. The debate Finland is having now is similar to the one the United States had decades ago. Back in 1971, Daniel Ellsberg was a former military analyst who was working at the RAND Corporation. There, he helped compile a study for the Defense Department that looked at the history of U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. That study revealed that the government had misled its citizens about why it entered the war and about the progress of the war. And this had gone on through four administrations. Daniel Ellsberg decided this information should be public, so he secretly photocopied and leaked the report to senators, scholars, and journalists, first at the New York Times and later the Washington Post and other publications. Those leaked documents came to be known as the Pentagon Papers. You know, tens of thousands of Americans died in Vietnam, and there was a belief that we were fighting this war, it was winnable, and the Pentagon Papers were really being able to show that while the government was saying that, they had information very much counter to that. That's R.B. Brenner. He's director of the journalism school at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also a former Metro editor at The Washington Post and was a consultant to Steven Spielberg's movie, The Post. That film recounts the events surrounding the publication of stories based on the Pentagon Papers. It stars Meryl Streep as Washington Post publisher Catherine Graham and Tom Hanks as executive editor Ben Bradley. There's dozens of stories in here. The Times has barely scratched the surface. And so when the New York Times obtained those documents and began to publish, they were essentially shut down by the Nixon administration going to court, and a judge issued an injunction. At that point, the Washington Post had to make a decision to defy that court order and resume publication. By publishing the stories, Graham and Bradley pushed the court to clarify the rights of a free press. Probably the most enduring and important aspect of the Pentagon Papers was the fact that it marked an attempt by the government to block journalists from publishing information that the journalists felt was in the public interest. If you publish, we'll be at the Supreme Court next week. Meaning? Well, we could all go to prison. One of the things that's most misunderstood by the public today is that they feel like the First Amendment gives journalists the ability to do anything without consequence, which is absolutely not true. If I write a story and someone feels like that's libelous, 
they have avenues to come after me and hold me accountable for my work. Or if I publish a story that the government feels like is, quote unquote, treasonous. So it's not like journalists can operate with impunity. With the First Amendment comes responsibilities as well as rights. The role of the journalist is not to be a stenographer. What reporting is all about is to analyze the material you have, do other interviews around it, and try to get as full a picture as possible. So that's the journalist side of document leaks. But what about the government side? What goes through the minds of those entrusted to protect us when some of their secrets are exposed? To help us answer those questions, we're joined now by General Michael Hayden. He formerly served as the director of the CIA, as well as the director of the National Security Agency. These days, he's a principal at the Chertoff Group. That's a D.C. risk management firm. And he's on the board of advisors at our parent company, America Abroad Media. So those in support of the whistleblowers and leakers, they often make a distinction between specific information about ongoing operations and kind mm -hmm. of more general information about policies. And they argue that the people have a right to know about and debate their government's policies. Yeah. So the NSA wiretapping program, which was implemented while you were head of the NSA, was secret mm -hmm. for a while. Why yeah. was it important for that to be secret? To begin with, intelligence, espionage is a is, is a work best done in the shadows. I mean, in essence, we were trying to detect communications that our adversaries didn't think we were capable of doing. To announce, for example, that we were covering a certain quadrant of global communications would tell our adversary to be more careful when they're in that quadrant. Globally, espionage services attempt to learn other people's secrets secretly. It's hard to learn another person's secrets publicly. And so in order to do what it is we're supposed to do, we do it without public announcement. Now, that creates tensions in a democracy. And the grand compromise within the American democracy is that we take something, espionage, that has historically come under almost to the exclusive control of the executive. And from the mid-1970s on, we've brought both Congress and courts into overseeing American espionage. Now, I understand you're not a fan of Edward Snowden. That's probably correct. <laughs> Can you just tell me, though, what kind of damage you think he caused? Sure. Um, so whatever debate you want to make about the uh, 215 program, that's the metadata program, or the 702 program, which Congress just reapproved, the other 99% of what he revealed is how the United States collects foreign intelligence against foreign targets and has no implication for American privacy. It was very destructive of one of the most productive agencies when it comes to creating intelligence to keep America safe. What has happened since that that has made it America less safe? Just under 1,000 legitimate foreign intelligence targets have changed their communications patterns based upon the Snowden revelations. And what does that tell you? It tells you America is less safe for a while. Because... Because foreign targets have been alerted as to how NSA collects against them. And that they could then change, change their, their pattern. Either they stop they... talking or they uh, use different devices or take more care and so on. Do you think there's a difference between Edward Snowden and, let's say, Daniel Ellsberg, who uh, released the Pentagon Papers? Snowden stuff was present tense and looking forward. It's about how we were collecting intelligence. It wasn't about U.S. government decision making one, three, five, seven years ago. I would judge that the destructive impact of the Snowden revelations was greater than that of the Pentagon Papers. 
I guess in hindsight, but at the time, President Nixon was pretty worried about that. And, and well, fact- I mean, it, it has a, it, it, look, even I recognize that when things that people thought would be kept secret are made public, it has a chilling effect on the deliberations of government, which, of course, is balanced by the need to, for our government to be transparent in a democracy. And so I'm back to my original premise, there will be continuous tension between these two values. They're both values. It's not the forces of light and the forces of darkness. Uh, Privacy and liberty, security, freedom are things we want to have in full measure. But in the real world, you make tough decisions. Well, General Hayden, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Of course, the intelligence community isn't just the only one advancing the debate of privacy versus liberty. Civil rights lawyers have been working in tandem with journalists and leakers to shed more light on controversial policies. One of those lawyers is Jamil Jeffer as deputy legal director at the ACLU. He argued cases that led to the release of the Bush administration torture memos and the Obama administration drone memos. Those were documents that showed how prisoners were tortured in Iraq and how American drones were used to kill suspected terrorists. Today, Jamil Jaffer is the executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Do you ever consider the fact that the government might be right or at least have some merit to their argument when it comes to national security concerns? Yeah, I think that some of the national security arguments are substantial and serious ones. And so, for example, if we had asked for the design of predator drones or the names of sources on the ground who were providing the CIA with its list of possible targets, then I think the CIA would have had a very strong argument that the disclosure of that kind of information would jeopardize national security and wouldn't give the public any real information that would be useful to it in evaluating the wisdom or the lawfulness of government policy. But we were careful in drafting our FOIA request not to ask for that kind of information. We were asking for policy information. In what circumstances does the government believe it has the authority to kill U.S. citizens? Do you think that the public is apt to view, you know, information gleaned from filing FOIA requests or lawsuits in a better light than if somebody like Edward Snowden has leaked this information? You know, one thing that it's, I think, important to recognize with respect to information about national security policy in particular is that it's almost impossible to actually force the government to disclose information that it says needs to be withheld on national security grounds. So when information is released to the public through FOIA about national security policy, at some level it's because the government has resigned itself to the release of that information. So you know, for that reason and for many others, I think whistleblowers are crucial. You know, when we evaluate the government's classification policies, for example, everybody understands that some information is going to be classified that shouldn't be classified. But the mere fact that something is overclassified doesn't mean that the whole system should be thrown out. And I would say the same thing about leaks. You know, it may be that something that Chelsea Manning disclosed shouldn't have been disclosed, but I wouldn't throw out the whole thing based on one instance in which she disclosed something she shouldn't have. Jamil Jaffer is the executive director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. Thank you. Thank you. 
Back in the 1970s, journalists at the Washington Post and other outlets scrambled to write stories from the 7,000-plus pages of the Pentagon Papers. Now, in the age of big data, that task is even more daunting. Coming up, how an international team of journalists worked on 11 million pages of documents and broke some of the biggest stories of the decade. Most of the time is spent bleary-eyed, reading through spreadsheets, reading through emails, and coming to that realization that you have to read through 100 files in order to find perhaps one useful nugget of information that can set you on the path to a great story. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can find us on Facebook or tweet us at America underscore abroad. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. This hour, document leaks, the consequences of revealing secrets. Will Fitzgibbon is a reporter at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or ICIJ. What we do at ICIJ is coordinate and report on international cross-border projects of an epic scale, whether it be leak-based or public information-based. Three years ago, ICIJ got its biggest break yet. An anonymous source named John Doe contacted the German investigative journalist Bastian Obermeier, who works at the newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung, with the cryptic initial email asking, interested in data? To which the reply, as any good journalist should say, was yes. And to his credit, Bastian Obermeier soon realised, holy hell, I've got more files on my hands here than one newspaper could properly deal with. And that's when he approached ICRJ, because he's a member of our network. Obermeyer's trove consisted of an astonishing 11.5 million documents, all stolen by John Doe from Mossack Fonseca, a Panamanian law firm which specializes in creating offshore accounts and shell companies for foreigners. It was by far the largest data leak in history. And it wasn't long before the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists realized the documents, which became known as the Panama Papers, contained some pretty startling revelations. I distinctly remember ICIJ's director first skimming through the Panama Papers documents and hearing whoops and exclamations of excitement and astonishment because the Panama Papers in particular contained such egregious examples of corruption, arms dealers, drug dealers, politicians hiding money and hiding assets through offshore companies that all you had to do was enter the surname of your most infamous politician and, hey presto, he or she would be there. So the ICIJ reached out to its network of nearly 400 journalists to help comb through the massive amount of data. All vowed to adhere to some strict ground rules. Number one, you don't talk about the leak. Don't talk to your wife about it. Don't talk to your favorite barista about it. Next rule, no hoarding information. All discoveries must be shared. To do that, the journalists develop their own secure social media site. It looks a little like Facebook, and we ask journalists, when you find something interesting, you put a note about that in this global communications platform. Because sharing that note will draw the attention of other journalists who, one, might be interested in running that story, or two, and more usefully, might have their own sets of information that can help complement or expand that investigation. The last major rule, everyone publishes their work on the same day. Really gives an enormous shot of energy and visibility to the project. With the parameters set, the reporters got down to work, which often was really boring. Most of the time is spent 
bleary-eyed, reading through spreadsheets, reading through emails, and coming to that realisation that you have to read through 100 files in order to find perhaps one useful nugget of information that can set you on the path to a great story. Those nuggets were then teased out. You recognise the name, you think there's a likelihood that person is a politician. You then do traditional journalism. Check whether or not there are laws in that politician's country to disclose offshore interests. If so, did the politician disclose? That can be a big problem if they didn't. Journalists at more than 100 media outlets across 80 countries spent a full year working with the documents. And that all culminated on April 3, 2016, at precisely 1.01 p.m. East Coast time, when they began publishing their stories. There are elements of these kind of projects that feel like a movie script. The day of publication, when the world goes crazy. A massive leak of confidential documents. Who's who of the world's elite. Money laundering. Panama Papers. Panama Papers. The Panama Papers' immediate impact was enormous. Thousands of stories came out of the leak. And according to Fitzgibbon, 79 countries announced corruption investigations. In Iceland, it was revealed that the prime minister, Sigmundur Gunnlaugsson, and his wife had hidden away millions in an offshore tax haven. The day after the story was published, Swedish television confronted Gunnlaugsson. Mr. Prime Minister, what can you tell me about a company called Vintris? Well, uh... Um, and then the Prime Minister just walked out of the interview. And then the BBC revealed that his shell company, which was in his wife's name, had been a creditor to several Icelandic banks. And when those banks went under in the worldwide financial collapse in 2008, public money was used to bail them out. Protesters gathered outside the Icelandic parliament building and demanded Gunnlaugsson resign. They were so angry, they hurled all sorts of things at the politicians entering the building. And as well as dairy products, they lobbed loo roll and smoke bombs, while police had to resort to using umbrellas to protect their targets. This was an incredible shock to the Icelandic political system and economic and financial system. That's Heather Conley. She's director of the Europe program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. To learn that senior government officials were finding those loopholes just made it more explosive. And so he had to step down. There was no other choice. I think when you lose the confidence of the people and coalition partners, yes. And in some ways, that helps stabilize things. You accept responsibility for these revelations, add transparency, and then you may be able to live another political day, potentially. But he really lost the confidence of the people. But then the next prime minister, it was found, also had offshore accounts. What was the reaction to that? Again, the same thing. It's just this loss of confidence in political figures that do not practice what they are preaching. And I think this lack of transparency erodes trust. It enables people to say, you know, all of our political leaders, they don't get it. It builds that anti-establishment sentiment that can be extremely destructive to democracy. Although he was not forced to step down or didn't step down. Well, there is a weariness uh, that comes. But again, my concern is people sort of throw up their hands and go, well, everybody does this. And that's, that's where you can't get to that point of acceptance. Democracy demands transparency. What we need to do is have a strong confidence in political leaders and institutions that they will do the right thing, that they will lead by example. So for me, this the sense of everyone is doing this is a really unhealthy sign that institutions and democracies cannot refresh themselves. 
Heather Conley, Director of the Europe Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you. Thank you so much. So that's Iceland. Across the world, in Pakistan and India, a similar story was playing out. Information that came from the Panama Papers had a mixed result there. It led to the ousting of Pakistan's prime minister, but other corruption has gone on unchecked. Chavi Sachdev reports from Delhi. In April 2016, when news stories from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists started appearing in the press, more than 500 Indians were identified as having illegal offshore companies in tax havens overseas. But reactions here were fairly muted. Across the border in Pakistan, though, it was a different story. Those are chants of Go Nawaz Go from London, New York City and across Pakistan at rallies and protest marches against the Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. The protests went on for days, in markets and streets, even though the government said the leaks were a CIA conspiracy. During cricket matches, spectators cheering the teams would start chanting, Go Nawaz Go! There was even a song about him, urging him to go with lyrics like, In every street and every lane, the news has spread that Sharif, whose name translates to noble, is a thief. Then the furor died down and other issues hogged the headlines. And it may have blown away entirely, says Dhrubajyoti Bhattacharji, a research fellow who focuses on Pakistan at the Indian Council of World Affairs in New Delhi, except for a widening rift between the military and the leadership. In between, Trump came in. He clearly stated that whatever is going on is a sham. That was naturally not to the liking of the Pakistani army. In Pakistan, the army has more autonomy than in most democracies. Since Pakistan was created in 1947, there have been several military coups and the country has had more than three decades, off and on, under military rule. Bhattacharjee says it wasn't just that the foreign policy was displeasing, but the economy was also taking a hit. And then came the big blow of the falling investments of China, uh, where China started backing out from some of the projects. Six months later, an investigative team representing the judiciary and the army looked into Sharif and his family's London properties. After deliberations and hearings, the Supreme Court of Pakistan concluded that he lacked Sadiq, honesty, and Amin, righteousness, and so he was disqualified from holding office. He was forced to resign because it was found out that he lied. He is not honest enough to carry on with the post of the Prime Minister. Who else, like, starting from Liyakat Ali Khan, who was honest in that way? Like, uh, no one is honest in that way. A sad ending for a third-term Prime Minister, but maybe not surprising given that no Prime Minister in the spotty history of Pakistani democracy has ever completed a full term. In July 2017, though his party stayed in power, his brother took over as interim prime minister. Bhattacharjee points out that 259 Pakistani nationals were named in the Panama Papers, but nobody except the Sharifs was prosecuted quite so publicly. When you follow the trail of power and see who benefits, he says, you can trace the real forces behind these unprecedented actions. In Pakistan, I'm telling you, corruption is not an issue. All are corrupt. How that document is being used? What is the necessity of that document? That is important. Panama turned out to be a mechanism, a device, with which a very powerful political family can be controlled. 
and that is exactly how it was used. While cynics continue to believe the army seized the opportunity to use the documents to depose Sharif, the journalists who researched and reported the stories feel that document leaks boost the transparency of a democracy, whether in India or in Pakistan. Ritu Sareen is an editor and investigative reporter at the Indian Express, and this is the fourth document leak she's covered. She headed the team and with the consortium took the decisions on what to release and when. The Nawaz Sharif story ran on the first day the Panama Papers stories broke. While there may not be such public consequences in India like a politician stepping down, the country still stands to benefit. Sareen points out that the income tax authorities are prosecuting the people named for tax evasion. The point is that the income tax authorities or the finance ministry is not obliged to tell anyone what they're doing uh, as far as the investigations are concerned. The cases will quietly go to court and uh, the people who own the offshore companies will have to pay penalties. But people need not get to know and they will not get to know. Analysts like Bhattacharjee say that while exposing a corrupt leader is well and good, it's only created a vacuum for the next leader who may or may not be a puppet of the army. Either way, he says, the leaks have made Pakistan's entire situation more unstable. If countries like Pakistan, which is a nuclear weapon state, goes through serious phases of instability, political as well as economic, South Asia can't grow, India can't grow. So we just cannot point out that this, this type of political instability will strengthen people further. So was all that hard work reporting the leaks worth it? Journalist Mazumdar seems sanguine about what leaks mean for democracy. It makes the system look bad if they don't act on it. If you keep at it, then you can push the system that bit. And at another level, there is no warranty for complete secrecy anymore. So however big and powerful you are, if you go somewhere, do some business, you'll think twice now. In the last four or five years, the number of leaks, it makes everyone a little jittery. And that's the other good sign, I think. Just a few months after Sharif resigned, another leak, the Paradise Papers, named 135 more Pakistanis, including another former Prime Minister, Shaukat Aziz. Aziz lives in London now and may escape formal prosecution by the Pakistani government, but the journalists who worked on these stories are confident he will not escape public scrutiny. From Delhi, I'm Chavi Sachdev for America Abroad. Back in 2010, WikiLeaks published a quarter of a million State Department cables, basically classified communications from American embassies and consulates to and from Washington. They included the private assessments of world leaders, including the president of Tunisia at the time, Zine al-Abidine ben Ali. And there was one cable in particular. It was a cable by Robert Godek entitled, Corruption in Tunisia, What's Yours is Mine. That's Hardy Merriman. He's president of the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, an organization that advocates nonviolent resistance. It really detailed corruption in that society, which was something everyone knew about. I mean, the cable itself said that corruption is the elephant in the room. It's the problem everyone knows about, but no one can publicly acknowledge. Because this was a regime that controlled media, that persecuted journalists. One leaked cable even described how the president's son-in-law owned a tiger and flew in ice cream from overseas. All these details turned into instant rallying cries on the internet. So when you suddenly have evidence presented that corruption is happening and the government knows that we know it, suddenly if we don't do something about it, we're accepting it. Inaction seems much more costly. 
In Tunisia, widespread protests led to Ben Ali's resignation after 23 years in power. But Merriman says while leaks can be an important catalyst for change, on their own, they're not enough to bring down autocrats. For me, when I look at a movement and try to analyze how it's doing, the first three things I'll look at is how united is it? Does it appear to have a strategic plan? And by strategic plan, I mean going beyond cycles of protest, finding different uh, tactics like strikes and boycotts and others to produce economic pressure, social pressure, and political pressure for key goals. And is it able to withstand violent repression and provocation and remain nonviolent? Because we know that's directly correlated with movement success. Coming up, protecting national security, what does it mean in the United States, and what does it mean in China? What Chinese authorities consider national security threats really can include peaceful, protected criticism. People standing out on street corners saying they too want an end to corruption. For more on this and past episodes, you can head to our website at PRI.org. You're listening to Document Leaks, The Consequences of Revealing Secrets on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. The Panama Papers led to many changes across the world, but not in China. And that's despite the fact that the law firm which held the leaked documents had more offices in China than anywhere else. The China and Hong Kong branches of Mossack Fonseca accounted for a third of the firm's total business. Beijing-based reporter Jocelyn Ford looks at how the world's wealthiest authoritarian government deals with this sort of leak. Two years ago, the Panama Papers revealed relatives of China's President Xi Jinping were among the list of people affiliated with anonymous offshore bank accounts. International news broadcasters were breathless. We're learning more and more about how the relatives of China's leadership store their money overseas. Two more members of China's political elite getting entangled in the mess. But these days on the streets of Beijing, it's hard to find anyone who's even heard of the Panama Papers. Outside the subway station, a few hundred feet from the shiny pink tower that was once home to a Mossack Fonseca office, I buttonholed 10 commuters. Panama. Panama Wenjin. This man, like nine out of the 10 I spoke with, had never heard of the Panama Papers. China-based corporate lawyer Steve Dickinson was not surprised. He said the government led a cover-up. The only thing the government did was very carefully remove all references in the Chinese language from websites and from social media. In other words, the nation's top leadership was concerned about how to maintain its reputation of being above corruption. Dickinson has worked in China since 1984 and has a wide network, including judges, lawyers, and private businesses with offshore accounts. His contacts would have been aware of the Panama Papers, but he says they shrugged it off. I personally think that the people who run China all want the opportunity to send their assets offshore. So no one in China has a motivation to make a big deal out of it. In a communist country ruled by a single strong-arm party, the playbook for dealing with leaks or any information the authorities want quashed goes something like this. Stamp out all mentions in mass media and online. Then lock up a few high-profile activists or protesters on vague charges like picking quarrels and provoking trouble. Or worse, charge them with subversion. This scares others into silence. Take the case of a group of anti-corruption activists. As China's President Xi Jinping declared the fight against corruption to be the centerpiece of his leadership, lawyers and activists jumped into action. 
they called for government officials to publicly disclose their assets. Sophie Richardson of Human Rights Watch says this did not end up well for the activists. Many of these activists were essentially saying the same things that state authorities themselves were saying, except that the activists then got prosecuted for having released information that was considered to be sensitive or simply having raised the topic in the public domain. At issue is who controls the narrative. And increasingly, China is using advanced technology to make sure the Communist Party keeps an iron grip on the storyline. Technologies like artificial intelligence are now enabling Orwellian-style controls that go far beyond Internet censorship. Again, Richardson of Human Rights Watch. We're writing at the moment about some technology that, in principle, allows authorities to know when two people who otherwise hadn't met before were suddenly meeting more than twice within a particular period of time. So people could end up on a watch list simply by socializing with someone with critical views of the government. Though the government does not reveal the full extent of its snooping practices, researchers believe all digital communications can be examined by authorities. Increasingly, the country is turning to facial recognition systems to keep an eye on the public. The government has plans to triple the number of surveillance cameras to over 600 million within two years. In a recent demonstration, police in the southern city of Guiyang started searching for a BBC reporter walking the streets. So already on this bridge, I can see one, two, three CCTV cameras. Within seven minutes, the BBC reporter was surrounded by police. Hello, guys. I've been expecting you. Oh, maybe these guys aren't in on the joke. The police boasted they could match every face with an ID card, and they could trace any person's movements for the previous week, including who that person had met. There are valid reasons for using such technology to fight crime or threats to national security, but China offers few protections for privacy, and its definitions of threats to the state are very broad. Again, Sophie Richardson of Human Rights Watch. I think the problem with China's definition of national security is that it knows no bounds. What Chinese authorities consider national security threats really can include peaceful, protected criticism. People standing out on street corners saying they too want an end to corruption. At international conferences and at the United Nations, China is challenging privacy and human rights standards enshrined as universal and it's finding willing customers for its technologies among other authoritarian governments. Business lawyer Steve Dickinson has clients in the Internet business who have lost contracts because he says other governments are attracted by China's package that includes censorship and surveillance options. There's a war going on in the IT area. The U.S. and Europe are taking one position, and China represents a completely different point of view. And China is supported by Russia. And when Russia and China sell internet-related or network-related technology to developing countries, they sell their information control package along with it. In the wake of President Donald Trump's America First rhetoric, China's President Xi Jinping has doubled down on boosting China's global leadership. His speech to the United Nations office in Geneva hints at seeking acceptance for China's authoritarian model of governing rather than universal values. China is ready to work with all the other UN member states as well as international organizations and agencies to advance the great cause of building a community of shared future for mankind.
President Xi recently called for an evolution of the global governance system. It's unclear what sort of changes he has in mind, but historian Rowena He, who teaches at St. Michael's College in Vermont, says China wants a bigger say on the global stage. The message is, okay, it used to be, quote-unquote, the West is the center of civilization, and now it's our turn. I think the ultimate goal is to use democracy to undermine democracy. If Beijing's handling of the Panama Papers is any indication, one goal of rewriting international rules could be to give a stamp of approval to China's system of state censorship. For America Abroad, I'm Jocelyn Ford. Even as governments try to crack down on whistleblowers and the media, leaks seem to be happening now more than ever, as CIA Director Mike Pompeo told MSNBC in June. I think there is a phenomenon, the worship of Edward Snowden uh, and those who steal American secrets for the purpose of self-aggrandizement or money. And it's getting easier for people or small groups to access lots of data. If you think about the world today, pretty much everything, open and secret information tends to flow to the web faster than it's ever done before. That's Christopher Alberg. He's co-founder of Recorded Future Threat Intelligence. That's a cybersecurity firm based in Cambridge. He's concerned about this because he says when you have a data leak, it's not enough to look at what's being revealed. You also have to figure out why the leaker revealed it. When people do these big hacks and just spread out lots of information, I doubt that it has anything to do with goodness. I don't think every leak of document is the same. You certainly have a hierarchy of not just the nature of the data and the documents, but also the damage. That's Juan Zarate. He's former Deputy National Security Advisor under President George W. Bush. And we should mention also a member of America Abroad Media's advisory board. One of the offensive parts of the Manning episode and the Edward Snowden case is that there's an assumption that these are individuals that have the moral right unto themselves to determine what should be released publicly when there are actually laws and processes and even courts that oversee and determine that, not to mention Congress and and oversight committees. And also journalists. For Will Fitzgibbon at the International Consortium of Independent Journalists, it's up to reporters to find a balance. Good to remember that although there are 13.4 million documents in the Paradise Papers, there weren't 13.4 million stories written about the papers. And that's because we as journalists recognize that there's lots of stuff in there that shouldn't be published. These are projects that need to be handled responsibly, and the public interest test is the most significant one that we can have to judge any kind of story. As the saying goes, information wants to be free. And when freed, it can create a lot of good, like the end of the Vietnam War, or the fall of a dictator in Tunisia, or new laws against corruption. It can also undermine the work of intelligence agencies, threaten international alliances, and sometimes put lives at risk. And that's not the only price. As Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning discovered, they paid with their liberty. It's a reminder that powerful forces often don't want information to be free. The pen, or in this case the keyboard, really can be mightier than the sword. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Shoshi Shmulevitz with additional production help from Flan Williams. Nolan Schneider provided our theme music and assisted with sound design. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. 
You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the Public Radio International app, or by visiting our website, PRI.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI. Public Radio International.